It's the 10th of April, 2020. This is the Room Now podcast, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Today, we're going to talk about the pandemic a little bit more. We're going to start off by actually doing some other things. First, we want to congratulate Dr. Ken Sag, who's been named the new chief for the division of uh, rheumatology at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Very strong division over the years, going to be led even further into the future with strength from Dr. Sag. Good luck, Ken. Uh, there's a study out about ITP and lupus, and I, I put it up because I thought, you know, everybody knows this, but do you know the numbers? Well, this particular study was a population-based study that looked at ITP cases over 15 years or 13 years and showed that of those people diagnosed with ITP, you actually had a 25-fold increased risk, 25-fold, hazard ratio 25.1 of developing lupus. My goodness. Uh, we've always known about this association. It's not surprising to see data that backs it up. Risk factors uh, for developing lupus were being female and also having Sjogren's syndrome. New England Journal has an interesting report that someone tweeted and I retweeted because I thought it was important. We'll cover it next week um, in Room Now uh, on head-to-head -head analysis of physical therapy um, versus uh, glucocorticoid injections in knee osteoarthritis showing, guess what? Physical therapy works. That's good news. More conservative always works. Next week, we're going to resume a lot of our rheumatologic reporting, maybe a little less emphasis on the coronavirus crisis. We're going to keep it going. We're going to have another town hall meeting probably in the first two weeks of May after a lot of this is played out. and We have some, a new round of different questions that we can pose to an expert panel. So look for that. You'll notice this week, if you follow us on Twitter, that we've been beginning every day with a tweet from Mr. Rogers. Now, I've never been a big fan of Mr. Rogers. A lot of people are, just not me. I didn't watch him growing up. Um, but I saw this movie with Tom Hanks, um, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. I was blown away by it. The man's philosophy, um, the way he lived was incredible. So uh, I like the quote that says, often when you think you're at the end of something, you're at the beginning of something else. I think that we might want to keep that in mind as we go forward. Uh, I tweeted at the beginning of the week some of the numbers from Sunday, April 5th, the numbers on coronavirus infections in the United States. We've had, the number was 9,600 deaths and over 337,000 confirmed infections. That was Sunday, April 5th. Today, it's shocking. The number of people infected in the United States has gone from 337 to almost 490,000 infected. Deaths have gone from 9,600 and doubled to 18,000. Five days, it doubled. It's shocking. Uh, worldwide, the numbers went from 1.2 million infected to today, 1.6 million infected, and from worldwide deaths from 69,000 to 101,000 worldwide. Um, we're up against a, a really tough foe here. Uh, we do know the presentations for this virus and how it presents. There are other organ systems that are involved. I think many of you have already heard about there's a significant cardiac uh, component to this. GI, I, I tweeted the GI information that's out there. It was covered recently in the, in the journal Gut. Um, the rates of diarrhea as a present, presenting finding is as low as 3%, as high as 24%. Nausea in 10 to 18%. 
Very few people are vomiting when they present, less than 4%, but LFT elevations are not uncommon seen in 20 to 30% of patients. Uh, it turns out that patients who have GI symptoms, most of them have the rest of the full house of symptoms, but you know what? 28% in one study did not have respiratory symptoms. So a lack of respiratory symptoms shouldn't preclude the diagnosis of coronavirus. Strangely enough, while they think you cannot get this through the GI tract, meaning if it's on a fruit that it's unlikely you're going to get it by eating the, any food that might be infected, they have found virus um, and cultured virus from, the stool, from stool samples of people who have proven infection. Likewise, brain involvement has been reported. You might have noticed today in room now we put up the um, findings of coagulopathy associated with IgJ anti Ig sorry IgA anti-cardiolipin antibodies and beta two glycoprotein uh, IgG antibodies, uh, and that was associated with limb ischemia and cerebral infarcts. This was seen in uh, in three patients in China, uh, and uh, I'm hearing a number of reports about encephalopathy that's been described. There's another report in the journal Radiology of uh, an acute necrotizing encephalopathy that they think is either from the, the, the bug itself, the virus, um, leading to vasculopathic changes or from the cytokine storm that may happen in those who are severely affected. The, the radiology report detailed multifocal lesions in the brainstem, cerebral white matter, cerebellum, thalamus, but a lot of them are around the thalamus and central. Um, and there was a hemorrhagic component to some of those. Children, you know, children, are children affected? Yes, they are. The Journal of Pediatrics says that children, thankfully, are less frequently affected and that um, uh, less of the people that are affected um, of those, let's see, the numbers under age 19 is less than 1% of all people infected. So the younger you are, the less likely you are. Most, a lot of those uh, ones that were infected were between the ages of 10 and 19. But um, there were very few deaths in, uh, and, and not quite zero, but there were very few deaths in those under 19. There is a report of um, no deaths amongst a, a U.S. cohort of 4,200 patients that were coronavirus uh, 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 proven under the age of 19. That None of those had died, but there have been worldwide reports of death in kids. But again, kids seem to be less affected. Um, the other interesting thing came out, Paul Peter Tack put out an interesting post um, on, on LinkedIn and Twitter um, that comes from a report out of China that where they analyzed their patients, they found that the um, rate of hospitalizations in severe respiratory failure was much higher in obese men who are infected with the coronavirus. In that study, when they compared, you know, normal weight, underweight, usual weight, and, and those that were overweight and obese, um, there was as much as a 2 to 2.5-fold 2 increased risk of severe respiratory outcomes in men who are obese, but not women who are obese. This kind of conforms to one of my observations. I don't know if you're seeing the same thing. Seems like the ones who do really bad here are 50 and 60-year-old men. Um, and um, I don't know whether they're obese or not, but this would say, just suggest an addition. And, and, and they don't always have to have comorbidity. You know, a lot of these uh, 50, 60-year-old men who develop rapid respiratory failure and death um, um, don't have pre-existing conditions in many cases. Maybe obesity is, the, is another one that sh we should worry about. Uh, the overall hospitalization rate for the COVID-19 infection is 4.6 per 100,000. 
This is a, about the rate that you see in 19 to 50 year old uh, individuals. The rate was higher when you were over the age of 65. It's 13.8, almost a threefold higher rate and almost a doubling in the 50 to 65 year old group at 7.4 per 100,000. So age is a factor in whether or not you're gonna uh, have a risk of hospitalization. Uh, and we did report last week about the influence of coronary disease, diabetes, uh, hypertension also being a factor. The discussion that we had on our town hall was we're not seeing a lot of our patients with autoimmune disease taking either biologics or methotrexate, azathioprine, hydroxychloroquine, etc. We're not seeing a lot of these patients infected nor going into the hospital. Um, and the question is, are our patients protected somehow, and that's why we need to aggressively enroll patients in the Global uh, Rheumatology Alliance Registry, COVID, uh, room-covid.org. If you have a patient of yours who has, has the coronavirus infection, enroll the patient. They'll collect data prospectively from you. It's very, very important. As of yesterday, they had 212 patients in the registry. Most of them were rheumatoids. Half of them, more than half of them were on DMARDs. There were 32 patients um, on, um, a quarter of them were on hydroxychloroquine. I think the number is about 15% with lupus here. Um, a quarter of, the, of all patients reported were on hydroxychloroquine. And I think there are 32 patients who were hospitalized on hydroxychloroquine, two of whom died. So the idea that hydroxychloroquine is protective here has been quickly dispelled by just observational reporting from you and your colleagues. We need to collect data and get some big numbers that the experts can rely upon when developing a public health strategy for this infection. The CDC, as you know, at the beginning of the week put out a directive that everyone should wear a cloth face covering in public. Uh, you should cover your mouth and nose and nose. It's not here. It's got to be both the nose and mouth when you're out in public. Um, part of it, it, it really is so that if I wear a mask, I'm protecting everyone else from me rather than me being protected from everyone else. So if everyone's wearing a mask, we're all good. If only half of us are wearing a mask, well, it really doesn't work. It's, like, it's sort of like not paying attention to social distancing. And that, I think, is the take-home message behind the small advantage afforded by everyone wearing masks. Um, uh, do not, you should use them when you're out in public. Do not use in children under age two. Um, and do not use uh, N95 masks, which really should be reserved for a healthcare worker when they're doing their job. As you know, there's gonna be a ser ser serious shortage of N95 masks and other PPEs out there. The CDC and MMWR did report on its study of the first report of COVID infection in Seattle in a nursing home. It was a study of 142 individuals, patients and staff, uh, and found that three residents and two staff who developed positive ha had positive tests but had no symptoms, suggesting that a number of the individuals in involved in this infection are those who are just carriers and not those who became infected with symptoms. They, upon finding the problem, they quickly implemented a number of the hygienic measures and social distancing that are required, that included social distancing, visitor restriction, testing of everyone, current hygiene practices, hand washing, not touching your face, etc. And they confirmed the value of these hygienic practices, especially social distancing. It's very, very important to underscore the proven value of that intervention. 
Um, there is a, an Annals of Internal Medicine report this week that looks at the incubation period. This is looking at um, 181 well-described cases where they have all the data that they need. And from those individuals, they uh, calculated a median incubation period here of 5.1 days, ranging from four to six. And that um, almost everyone develops symptoms within 11.5 days. These estimates suggest that for every 100,000 cases, there would only be 100 who would develop symptoms after 14 days of active quarantine, suggesting some of the numbers and days and limits on quarantine that you've heard out there right now. I'll close with a review of the NICE guidelines on rheumatologic care and care of your patients who have rheumatic conditions uh, during this COVID-19 epidemic. They released this on April the 3rd. Uh, the ACR has a task force that's finalizing its recommendations. You'll see those shortly, probably next, uh, this upcoming week. Um, and I'll just give to you a few highlights that you probably may know about, but may want to tell others about. Obviously, everyone should be min minimizing face-to-face -face contact, and we should be doing remote visits as much as possible. Who should you see? They don't go into that. I went into that with a blog yesterday called Urgent or Not. I put out there who are the urgent conditions that need to be seen, and that's for you to consider as a guideline during the COVID crisis. For patients who actually are infected, and this really applies to those who are not infected, um, everyone should continue their hydroxychloroquine, their sulfazalazine, their non-steroidals, and their prednisone or prednisolone. Do not stop these medicines. There's no good reason to do that. Um, you should probably not stop any DMARD or biologic if you're not infected and you're just worrying about it. Um, they do say that if you're infected that you should stop uh, other DMARDs, um, and that would include methotrexate and JAK inhibitors and biologic therapies. I don't know that I agree with that, but uh, we'll see what the ACR um, committee is going to come up with. Um, they say that you should not be doing in general intraarticular steroid injections at this period and that you would only do it in a COVID-infected person if there was a significant degree of disease activity and there were no other alternatives, then it could be done. Otherwise, you really shouldn't be doing joint injections. You should manage this with other medicines, outpatient, oral meds, etc. They did remind everyone that patients on immunosuppressive therapies may have atypical presentations with regard to the COVID-19 infection. That goes to the point I made earlier. Something different about our patients maybe not getting infected. My crazy theory, not based on any fact, is that our patients who have hyperimmune status, overactive, inflammatory arms and, and B cell activity and whatnot, we control those and control them so the patients are disease controlled and doing well. But maybe their immune system being turned up a little might be enough to protect them from either infection or severe infection. You heard it here first, blame me when it's wrong, congratulate me, nominate me for the Nobel Prize when I'm right. Um, maybe soon? Anyway, um, they say do not stop bisphosphonates and, uh, and denosumab during this period. You should give them as scheduled um, and that you could hold off um, reclass or zolandronic acid for another six months if need be. That they tell you to consider or reconsider the use of routine laboratory testing every three months, especially a patient who has had such testing in the last two years with no abnormalities that you could space, consider spacing out the therapies for a little longer. They want you, they end with two really important points. One is to 
support your staff um, as keep in touch with them as much as possible really for their mental well-being you know a lot you know more you people want to be led they need you to lead provide your staff with leadership give them messaging if you're not in, in meeting with them on a regular basis basis and maintain morale during what is a very difficult period for healthcare providers that's it for this week you can go to the website and find the links to these reports and more uh, next week, a lot of reporting on good old rheumatology. Next week, Tuesday night rheumatology grand rounds on the evaluation of febrile patients in rheumatic patients. That is going to be done by me. I'm going to talk about auto-inflammatory diseases, Stills disease, the diagnosis of such diseases by either clinical grounds or by genetic testing. We'll talk to you next week. Take care.